Well, anyone that's ever worked sheep knows they tend to follow a leader. And depending on the circumstances, that can be amusing, aggravating, or downright awful. In the category of amusing, years ago I heard uh, that if you're working sheep through a gate and you shoved a sorting stick in there so they had to jump over it to get to the gate, then once you got them jumping, you could go ahead and pull that stick back out again. And even though there was nothing left there for them to jump over, every last one of those sheep coming through that gate would still jump up in the air. Sounded like a great experiment, but I actually never tried it, uh, probably because that would have got my dad jumping around too, which probably wouldn't have been the best idea in the world if you were his son. In the category of amusing and aggravating, the great Australian poet and author Banjo Patterson describes a typical situation. When being counted out at a gate, if a scrap of bark be left on the ground in the gateway, they will refuse to step over it until dogs and men have sweated and toiled and sworn and healed them up and spoke to them and fairly jammed them at it. At last, one will gather courage, rush at the fancied obstacle, spring over it about six feet in the air, and then dart away. The next does exactly the same, but jumps a bit higher. Then comes a rush of them, falling one in another in wild bounds like antelopes, until one overjumps himself and alights on his head. This frightens those still in the yard, and they stop running out. In the category of awful, I quote, Istanbul, Turkey, Associated Press, July 9th, 2005. First one sheep jumped to its death. Then stunned Turkish shepherds, who had left the herd to graze while they had breakfast, watched as nearly 1,500 others followed, each leaping off the same cliff. And they end, 450 dead animals lay on top of one another in a billowy white pile. Those who jumped later were saved as the pile got higher and the fall got more cushioned. Close quote. That's just how sheep are. Sometimes you kind of wonder if they have the patent on stupid. It's kind of uh, more than passing interest that our Lord, who made both men and sheep, calls us sheep. And this following a leader off a cliff has obvious applications to religious questions. Throughout history, there have been a lot of religious leaders who claim to have a mission from God. How many souls duped by false leaders have been led off a spiritual cliff? How can we evaluate claims that someone has been sent by God? Today we're going to briefly answer that question, and then we'll go on from there to consider a few of the less obvious spiritual cliffs that people might be let off. We'll start by considering the situation of an ambassador being posted from one country to another. You can boil it down into two steps. First, if a foreign country is going to send an ambassador to the United States, they start by sending notice to Washington that their ambassador is coming. Secondly, when the man shows up in Washington and complains, com claims to be the ambassador, he presents his credentials, which prove that, in fact, he is the ambassador. So the two steps are first, sent notice that the ambassador is going to be posted, and then second, the ambassador presents his credentials, which proves he is indeed who he says. It's just common sense. We can apply 
these same tests to the founders of the various religions in history. We can just mentally line them up across a huge stage. The Buddha, Muhammad, Christ our Lord, Joseph Smith, he founded uh, the Mormons, Ellen Gould White, she founded the Seventh-day Adventist, Charles Taze Russell, he founded the Jehovah's Witness, Father Martin Luther, founded Protestantism, and all the rest. And then, since it's only reasonable to expect that a proper notice is sent ahead when posting an ambassador from one country to another, so also it's only reasonable to expect that the least thing an all-powerful God could do is let us know that he's sending a messenger. So we'd be expecting him and know how to recognize him when he comes. After all, how else could we be sure that the man actually were a divine ambassador? And so on that basis, we apply test number one to this whole lineup we have of religious leaders. We ask them, which one of you was pre-announced? Which one of you were we expecting? And after we apply this first test, the stage is cleared, except for one man. Only one was expected. Only one of these had his place of birth and the strange circumstances which surrounded it foretold. Only one had his family lineage foretold. Only one had the circumstances of his life and his violent death described literally centuries before he arrived. Only one. Jesus of Nazareth. But let's go ahead and apply the second test to the one and only man left on the stage, Jesus of Nazareth. We ask him, where are your credentials? If you really were sent by God, then prove it. And as all history shows and continues to show, he did. Controlling the weather, raising the dead, including himself, healing the sick and lame, giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and casting out devils. And devils are still cast out in his name. I have a friend that's an exorcist in the Caribbean. It isn't just the Catholics that come to him. The Muslims come to him. The Hindus come to him. Why? Because he has a power that no one else does. He has the power of Christ. He casts out those devils in his name. Even the Talmud, those are religious books produced by the rabbinic Jews well after our Lord's time. But even the Talmud acknowledges his miracles. They just ascribe them to the power of Satan. It's just the same thing we see in the gospel. The Pharisees accusing him of doing things by the power of Beelzebub. So they even acknowledge, this is a hostile witness. You can't get much more hostile than that, that acknowledge the miracles. So our Lord was expected beforehand, and he fulfilled literally hundreds of prophecies, and then once he arrived, he presented his credentials by working miracles. Does he have the right to speak for God? Yes, and he proved it. He said that he would found a church on Peter, that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, that it would be visible. The church was his bride. He's not a polygamist that he was sending out his apostles. Apostle is a Greek word that means a man sent with a commission. That he was sending out his apostles to all the nations. All the nations, universal, the whole world. 
Greek word for that is katholikos, to teach all that he commanded them, and he'd remain with them for all time. He said that his apostles spoke with the authority of God Almighty and that he would guide his church into all truth. His apostle, St. Paul, tells us that the church Christ established is the pillar and the foundation of truth. And this is why we can rely absolutely on the official teachings of the Catholic Church in any area of faith or morals, since in the words of God, he who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me. Christ our Lord called himself the Good Shepherd, and he compared us to sheep. And given that he made both sheep and men, he knew full well our weaknesses in our need, our absolute need for a reliable leader to keep us from jumping off spiritual cliffs. And so he set up a church that will last until the end of the world and a visible head to rule over that church to lead us until the end of the world. And the authority given to that church, the Catholic Church, and to that visible head, the Pope, by Christ himself is absolutely and completely unique. These other organizations that call themselves churches were founded by carpetbaggers. Well-meaning or not, they're a bunch of carpetbaggers. They have absolutely no authority whatsoever from God to found any church, let alone to preach in his name. After all, who sent them? Who chose them? What right do they have to preach? So the very first question to be asked about a religious leader is who sent you? Who sent you? In order to be from God, it has to be sent from the Catholic Church, visibly sent. In other words, union with the visible head established by Christ, the Pope, in the bosom of the visible church established by Christ, the Catholic Church, is not optional. The hierarchical nature of the church is of divine Origin. It isn't just a relatively good idea. It's Christ's positive will. Explicit union with the Pope in the bosom of the Catholic Church is a necessary, but it is not a sufficient condition to make sure a religious leader is a safe guide. I'll repeat that. Explicit union with the Pope in the bosom of the Catholic Church is a necessary, but it is not a sufficient condition for a religious leader to be a safe guide. Why? Because we can have people that are in explicit union with the Pope in the bosom of the Catholic Church that are not safe guides at all unless you want to go to hell. So the other condition is orthodoxy, having the true faith. That is also unnecessary, but a not a sufficient condition for a religious leader to be a safe guide. If we want to keep from falling religious leaders off a cliff, we have to be sure that they've been sent by the Catholic Church, they're in union with the Pope, and that they have the true faith. In other words, that they truly are orthodox. An authentic preacher, an authentic religious leader must be sent by the Church and be orthodox, have the true faith, period. Okay, 
Now let's just run down a short list of some of the ways that if we're not careful, we might find ourselves following some leader off a spiritual cliff. The dual church cliff. It is certainly no secret that there's a lot of sin, scandal, corruption, chaos in the church today. And unfortunately, there's a huge amount of misunderstanding about this or how we are to think about this. Our Lord himself provided the correct understanding of how we are to think about sin and chaos in the church in his parable of the wheat and cockle. When he told us about the farmer who sowed good seeds, but his enemy came and oversowed with cockle. The servants wanted to pull up the cockle, but the farmer told them, wait until the harvest, then gather the wheat into the barns and burn the cockle. Obviously, in good times, spiritually speaking, there's a much higher proportion of wheat in the fields of the Lord. The wheat, of course, representing uh, good Catholics, and the fields of the Lord representing the Catholic Church, huh? Times like ours, on the other hand, there's a very high percentage of cockle. In other words, sinners and scoundrels present throughout the church. But in his parable, he didn't give any proportions, did he? In spite of our Lord's actual explicit explanation that sinners and scoundrels will be present in the church right up until the day of judgment, there's a very serious misunderstanding of this point which periodically arises. Writing some 80 years ago, the most reverend Wilhelm Stockholms, auxiliary bishop of Cologne in Germany, warned seminarians, and by extension all of us, to beware of this dangerous error. Bishop Stockholms, I quote, one dangerous snare that a seminarian must scrupulously avoid is the temptation to make a senseless and unfortunate distinction between an ideal church and the church of reality. No such thing as a dual church exists. There is only one church, and that is the church as she is in reality. I repeat that. One dangerous snare that a Catholic must scrupulously avoid is a temptation to make a distinction between an ideal church and the church of reality. No such thing as a dual church exists. There is only one church, and that is the church as she is in reality. Hence, it is futile, even impossible, to approve an ideal church removed from reality and to condemn the church that actually exists. It's futile. Experience proves that the danger present in such conceptions and distinctions lies principally in this that they soon lead in practice to a hostile attitude toward the existing church and in the end to complete apostasy. This lamentable consequence should prompt every Catholic to suppress from the start any tendency to make such distinctions and to avoid as a matter of principle all such purposeless subtleties. The divine human institution as it exists in reality the Catholic Church, as it exists in reality, is the only one that must be recognized as the true Church of Christ. To it belong our reverence, our obedience, our love, and our loyalty. Close quote. One dangerous snare that each Catholic must scrupulously avoid 
is a temptation to make a distinction between an ideal church and the church of reality. There's only one church, and that's the church as she is in reality. Experience proves that the danger in such distinctions lies principally in this, that they soon lead in practice to a hostile attitude towards the existing church and the end to complete apostasy. Divine human institution as it exists in reality is the only one that must be recognized as a true church of Christ. To it belong our reverence, our obedience, our love, and our loyalty. Now nowadays, we have two very distinct varieties of this dual church error. But before we break those down, let's make sure that we clearly understand that these two varieties are not morally equivalent. They're not moral equivalents. On the one hand, we have people picturing an ideal church that doesn't exist and can never exist. Okay, but on the other hand, we have people picturing an ideal church in a form that indeed once did exist. So we have two very distinct varieties of this error. On the liberal side of the aisle, we have people imagining an ideal church where apparently anyone can marry anyone else, everyone can take the pill, the congregation, so to speak, all hold hands and sing kumbaya while the women and priests skip up the aisle blowing kisses at everybody, okay? The principal danger in coming up with this sort of liberal ideal church in approving that rather than royal, and condemning a church that actually exists is it leads to a hostile attitude towards existing church, and boy, do we see that, and in the end, to complete apostasy. And here we are in the greater circles of the church. Just look around. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. So that's one distinct variety of this error. The liberal vision of ideal church that will never exist and can never exist. There is certainly another distinct variety of the same error found in what we might call on the pious side of the aisle. In this variety of the same error, we have people imagining they belong to an ideal church which is supposedly in full communion with all the popes and bishops before Vatican II in which only the traditional mass is offered, and in which what they call the conciliar church, the Catholic church, as she actually exists today, is rejected. And as we just heard, the principal danger in improving an ideal church removed from reality and condemning the church that actually exists is this soon leads to a hostile attitude towards the existing church. And I certainly know a lot of people in that category, many of whom... I'm extremely fond of, and in the end, to complete apostasy. Here we are. This attitude is rife in some circles, picturing an ideal church in a form that indeed once did exist, and hostile towards a church that actually does exist. My opinion, that's what it is, it's my opinion, is that as we collapse ever more towards the church of the catacombs, the people who have fallen into this view will grow increasingly scandalized and find it harder and harder to actually recognize the actual Catholic Church. It's nowhere near as disordered as a liberal understanding, but ultimately, it ends in the same place. The pious variety of this error is analogous to certain responses at Calvary. Those who are confronted by the reality of the crucifixion and did not immediately draw closer to Our Lady, began to be scandalized. 
at the contrast between the reality of our bruised, beaten, bleeding, and suffering Lord hanging there on the cross and the memories they had of his former strength and beauty and power. They got scandalized, and then they ran away. They ran away. One dangerous snare that the Catholic must scrupulously avoid is the temptation to make a senseless distinction between an ideal church and the church of reality. No such thing as a dual church exists. No such thing. Experience proves the danger in such conceptions and distinctions lies principally in this, that they soon lead in practice to a hostile attitude towards the existing church in the end, to complete apostasy. The divine human institution, as it exists in reality, is the only one that must be recognized as the true Church of Christ. To it belong our reverence, our obedience, our love, and our loyalty. For the rest of this sermon, we're going to follow this fork in the trail and take a really quick look at a series of errors that have sprouted up as a result of this precise error of making this dangerous distinction. Before we get into all that, let's make sure that you understand it's a discussion of these errors. It isn't a personal hack at anyone. We're speaking of objective errors, not the subjective disposition of people that may or may not have fallen into them. Cerevacantism. Like communion in the hand, and girl altar boys, sedevacantism is another one of these completely novel ideas dreamed up in the wake of Vatican II. It hasn't been just the liberals pulling never-before-seen novelties out of their hats. There may be some here who don't know what sedevacantism is. Sedevacantism is a fruit of this very dual church kind of thinking. It arose as an attempt by basically pious Catholics to explain the very real chaos, confusion, and heresy in the church. What we might call the nutshell version of the standard Sidivicontis uh, uh, explanation, there's actually a number of varieties. But the nutshell version of the standard explanation is that the last real pope was Pius Twelfth. In other words, St. John XXIII, Paul VI, St. John Paul II, uh, or St. John Paul I, St. John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and now Francis are not real popes. And so the council and all the confusion, heresy, and chaos are a result of the actions of these false non-popes and their henchmen. We should point out that all Sedevicantism is theologically impossible for reasons we're going to get to uh, briefly. In fact, it's actually a logically consistent explanation. It's logically consistent. uh, once one grasps the premises. But even though it's logically consistent, since the premises are wrong, it all falls apart. The principal premise that they get wrong is rooted in a very real misunderstanding of the relationship between Christ and his church. Here's what the principal error is. Christ will not abandon his church. He did not say, Thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it until the Second Vatican Council. 
He did not say, all power is given to me on heaven and earth. Going therefore, teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all days until the Second Vatican Council. This is the God who can neither deceive nor be deceived, and he promised to be with us always, not just until the Second Vatican Council. One author's brilliantly summarized the problem, and I quote, the Sedevicantus position is intricately one of despair. It is, in fact, a denial of the promise of our Lord, which is so aptly summarized in Pastor Eternus. Pastor Eternus is a document of the First Vatican Council, and which is so easily understood without the aid of theologians, theological manuals, or canonists. I will quote from Vatican I. That which the Prince of Shepherds and Great Shepherd of the Sheep, Jesus Christ our Lord, established in the person of the Blessed Apostle Peter to secure the perpetual welfare and lasting good of the Church must, by the same institution, necessarily remain unceasingly in the Church, which, being founded upon the rock, will stand firm to the end of the world. For none can doubt, and it is known to all ages, that the Holy and Blessed Peter the prince and chief of the apostles, the pillar of faith and the foundation of the Catholic Church, received the keys of the kingdom from our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior and Redeemer of mankind. And Peter lives, presides, and judges to this day, always in his successors, the bishops of the Holy See of Rome, which was founded by him and consecrated by his blood. Whence, whoever succeeds to Peter in this see, whoever becomes the Bishop of Rome. Once whoever succeeds to Peter in the sea does by the institution of Christ himself obtain the primacy of Peter over the whole church. The disposition made by incarnate truth therefore remains, and blessed Peter, abiding in the rock's strength which he received, has not abandoned the direction of the church. Close quote, Vatican I. Sedevicantism is a religion of abandonment by Christ. There is only one church, and that is the church as she is in reality. The church may not be the way we think it should be, but it is the church. The popes may not be the way we think they ought to be either, but they are the popes. Don't run off the set of a contest cliff. Practical set of a Kantism cliff. In our day and age, we have two very distinct varieties of what we might call practical set of a Kantis. They both operate with the same fundamental principles. The first and most fundamental principle we've already seen. As a result of Vatican II, there are dual churches. The second principle is a fundamentally modernist position. Although there is a pope, he can only command me, the church, my congregation, whomever, only insofar as we accept or agree with his decisions or his judgments or his commands. Now, this principle is obviously rooted in and depends on the use of private judgment. Those who employ these two principles are practical set of contests because although they admit there is a pope, practically speaking, they act as if he doesn't exist, except when they're ticked off at him for some action, speech, or decision which they find 
annoying or offensive. These are the operating principles of true post-concealed liberals, like these congregations of whacked-out nuns. And sadly and ironically enough, also the operating principles of many otherwise pious traditional Catholics, who have somehow convinced themselves that these extremely dangerous and erroneous principles are compatible with the authentic Catholic faith. But that's a delusion. They're not morally equivalent. There's not a moral equivalence between the liberal practical set of a contest and the traditional one, but they're both wrong. Leo XIII comments on a similar trend in his day. And notice what the reason is. Quote, doubtless as a result of current evils, there are some Catholics who far from satisfied with the condition of subject, which is theirs in the church, think they are allowed to examine and judge after their own fashion the acts of authority. A misplaced opinion, certainly. If it were to prevail, it would do very grave harm to the Church of God, in which by the manifest will of her divine founder, there are to be distinguished in the most absolute fashion two parties. The teaching and the taught, the shepherd and the flock, among whom there is one who is the head and supreme shepherd of all. Close quote, the vicar of Christ. There's another error commonly found among people who hold the pious practical set of a position. They often oppose the faith to obedience, as if obedience to the Pope since Vatican II somehow necessarily results in the loss of the faith. In other words, to save the faith, it's necessary to disobey. But that's obviously not the case. Here you all are. One author discusses other aspects of this problem. Quote, what so many fail to realize is that Vatican I teaches a twofold primacy of the Pope. A primacy of truth, as embodied in his infallible teaching office, and a primacy of charity, as embodied in his primacy of jurisdiction. And Vatican I further teaches that submission to both of these principles is necessary not only for incorporation in the church, but for faith and salvation. In the words of Pastor Eternus, this is the Vatican I document again, and I quote, Hence we teach and declare that by the appointment of our Lord, the Roman Church possesses a sovereignty of ordinary power over all other churches, and that this power of jurisdiction of the Roman Pontiff, which is truly Episcopal, is immediate, to which all of whatsoever right and dignity are bound by their duty of hierarchical subordination and true obedience to submit, not only in matters which belong to faith and morals, but also in those which pertain to the discipline and government of the church throughout the world. So that the church of Christ may be one flock under one supreme pastor through the preservation of unity, both of communion and a profession of the same faith with the Roman pontiff. This is the teaching of Catholic truths from which no one can deviate without the loss of faith and salvation. Close quote, the First Vatican Council. It is really extraordinary the degree to which so many traditionalists seem to discard this definitive teaching in regard to the divine constitution of the church. They usually reply something to the effect that the Pope's government and discipline of the church 
does not involve the charism of infallibility, that he can be seriously wrong in his judgment on such things, and that we have the right to disobey him when he is wrong. In other words, they completely miss the point. The primacy of the Pope in matters of discipline and government of the church has nothing to do with infallibility. It involves a primacy not over our intellects, but it's over our wills. And just as the primacy over the intellect binds us in regard to what we must believe in regard to faith and morals, so the papal primacy of jurisdiction binds us in regard to our Catholic hearts. All that is involved with what constitutes our apostolic work in union with Christ through his mystical body. It binds us, in other words, to that union of charity, which is the church acting in this world. To defy this unity, either in principle or in act, is to attack the unity of the body of Christ. It is equivalent to an attack on the divine constitution of the church as constituted by Christ himself. Papal government and discipline of the church, the primacy of jurisdiction, does not in any way involve the exercise of the charism of infallibility. But the doctrine defined the nature of this primacy and the necessity of our being subject to and obedient to the Pope's acts of discipline and governance to the church is indeed an infallible teaching, the denial of which is a heresy and entails loss of Catholic faith and salvation." Close quotes. This is serious. We teach and declare by the appointment of our Lord, the Roman Church possesses sovereignty of ordinary power over all other churches. This power of jurisdiction of the Roman Pontiff, which is truly Episcopal, is immediate, to which all are bound to submit. Not only matters which belong to faith and morals, but also those which pertain to the discipline and government of the Church throughout the world. So the Church of Christ may be one flock under one supreme pastor, the preservation of unity, both of communion and profession of the same faith with the Roman pontiff. This is a teaching of Catholic truth from which no one can deviate without loss of faith and salvation. The divine human institution as it exists in reality is the only one that must be recognized as the true Church of Christ. To it belong our reverence, our obedience, our love, and our loyalty. There is only one Church, and that's the Church as she is in reality. The church may not be the way we think she should be, but it is the church. The popes may not be the way we think they should be either, but they are the popes. Don't run off the practical Sedevicantus cliff. The non-canonization cliff. Now before we consider last week's canonizations, let's start by recognizing there is plenty of room for shock and amazement here by any reasonably well-informed Catholic. It's plain flat dishonest to approach the situation in any other way. What are we saying? It's a cinch bet. If I were a Muslim apologist, if I were someone trying to recruit Catholics to become Muslim, I'd be showing everybody his goat pictures of St. John Paul II kissing the Koran. I could really make some hay with that one. And there's plenty of other colorful pictures like that, too. We don't have to like it. I don't like it. But it happened, and that's just reality. Given all this, it would be very easy to get excited, allow ourselves to become scandalized, 
and they get swept right off a cliff by any number of seemingly plausible arguments. It's happening to a lot of good people. We want to take care not to fall over the cliff. It's essential to remain calm and to know our faith. So let's go through this. At a later date, we'll take a closer look at papal teaching. We've already said that. But today, we're simply going to consider the question of canonizations. And to do that, we need to take a closer look at what is known as the extraordinary infallibility of the Pope. The doctrine of papal infallibility was defined by the First Vatican Council. And I'll quote, faithfully adhering to the tradition received from the beginning of the Christian faith, we teach and define as divinely revealed dogma that when the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, that is, when an exercise of his office as pastor and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith and morals to be held by the whole church. He possesses by the divine promise, uh, divine assistance promised to him, blessed Peter, that infallibility which the divine redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith or morals. Therefore, such definitions of the Roman pontiff are of themselves, and not by the consent of the church, irreformable. Close quote, Vatican I. When the Pope intends, one, to make a definite decision, two, by virtue of his su supreme apostolic authority, three, on a matter of faith or morals, four, to be held by the, the whole church throughout the world, he is prevented by the Holy Spirit from teaching error. Any papal teaching that meets these conditions is infallible, that is to say, it cannot be erroneous, and it's irreformable, that is to say, it cannot be changed. It does not require the use of a set formula. Any words may be used that will sufficiently indicate the definitive nature of the degree. Please note that infallibility is not inspiration. The Holy Spirit doesn't move the Pope to write or say something. It's, uh, infallibility is not revelation. The Holy Spirit does not reveal to the Pope what he should teach or define. Infallibility works in a negative way. The Holy Spirit will not allow the Pope to make an erroneous statement in the conditions we have listed. Okay, now given all that, listen carefully to this statement which, is, which was made by Pope Francis last Sunday. We'll read it first and then break it down. Got it off the Vatican website. Quote, formula of canonization. For the honor of the Blessed Trinity, the exaltation of the Catholic faith, and the increase of the Christian life. By the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the holy apostles Peter and Paul and our own, after due deliberation and frequent prayer for divine assistance, and having sought the counsel of many of our brother bishops, we declare and define Blessed John the Twenty-Third and John Paul II be saints, and we enroll them among the saints, declaring that they are to be venerated as such by the whole church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Close quote. Okay. Now we'll just quote the Pope's words as we go down the list. Remember, the Pope is infallible when he, one, intends to make a definite decision. Pope Francis. We declare and define, blessed John the Twenty-Third and John Paul II be saints, and we enroll, among, we enroll them among the saints. There's your definite decision. Number two, by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority. Pope Francis said, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and the holy apostles Peter and Paul and our own. There he's invoking his supreme apostolic authority. Number three, on a matter of faith and morals. Canonization is a matter of faith and morals. Pope Francis said, for the exaltation of the Catholic faith, increase of the Christian life. And finally, for the whole church. 
Pope Francis said, we enroll them, by them he means Blessed John the Twenty-Third and John Paul II, we enroll them among the saints, declaring they are to be venerated as such by the whole church. So there we hear a definite decision of Pope Francis made by virtue of supreme apostolic authority and a man of, matter of faith and morals to be held by the whole church. That is an infallible statement. It is an irreformable statement. It does not depend on the consent of the church. It is just plain flat, cut and dry. St. John the Twenty-Third and St. John Paul II are in heaven. That's reality, period. Close the book. Now, here's a little manual published in Rome for the use of Roman congregations. It's a Latin work, and if I translate the title, it, it's going to be concerning the value of theological notes and the criterion uh, for distinguishing or for knowing them. Okay. In this little manual, we read that to deny the sanctity of a canonized person, to deny that a canonized person is heaven, would be an error in theology and a mortal sin indirectly against the faith. That is a pretty serious cliff. You don't even want to get close to that edge. And yet, in spite of all this, we've been seeing any number of completely novel arguments being trotted out as to why these canonizations aren't really canonizations. But so far, I haven't seen any of the objectors cite a single traditional theological work. And why not? Because they can't. Their arguments have never before been heard. Their arguments are complete novelties. These guys would be screaming like wounded saxophones as some liberal theologian cooked up this kind of craziness that they're coming out with. It's completely novel. And that's something worth reflecting on. It's worth reflecting on. Does everyone here know what the original term for Protestants was? In Latin, they were called the novatores. That means the guys that dream up novelties. And that's just what these guys are doing. I will cite what so far is the very best of their very lame arguments. Here it is in a nutshell. The process of canonization was radically changed. Well, that's, that's certainly true. It has been radically, radically changed. There's no denying that. The process of canonization was radically changed, and since the process is no longer so rigorous regarding the question of heroic virtue, the question of miracles, the question of orthodoxy, the person's writings, and those are all true. It isn't reg very rigorous on any of those. That's true. So, the process of canonization was radically changed since the process is no longer so rigorous regarding the question of heroic virtue, the question of miracles, or the question of the orthodoxy of the person's writings. Then, and here's the conclusion that doesn't follow, this new process does not reliably indicate that the person canonized using the new procedures is in heaven. Okay, that's the argument. But here's the answer. The fact that the process of canonization has been radically changed and is no longer so rigorous regarding the questions of heroic virtue, miracles, or orthodoxy of person's writings, we grant that. It is completely irrelevant, absolutely, utterly irrelevant to the question. A saint is not a saint because of the process used in canonizing him. A saint is not a saint because of the process used in canonizing him. A canonization is a declaration that the saint is in heaven. And as we've just seen, an act of canonization is an infallible statement. The Holy Spirit will not allow the Pope to make an erroneous statement of any type, including canonizations, under the conditions we've listed. If he's going down those, meets those four conditions, this, and he does in this case, 
The Holy Spirit will not allow him to make an erroneous statement. That's our faith. Don't jump off this cliff. And just hold that thought for a second. I've mentioned this before, but it's worth reflecting on. John Paul too. You can show all the pictures you want, all that stuff, I'll grant all of it. You can dig out every quote, I'll grant all of it. He had a long death with the benefit of sacraments, and give or take a billion people praying for him we die. If he's not in heaven, we all got problems. What we have here is private individuals pitting their private judgments against a formal, infallible, irreformable, papal judgment. It is serious. Don't go down that road. This is where the set of contest, misguided as they are, are nevertheless much more logically consistent than the practical set of contest. The very idea that the Pope can canonize two saints, quote, declaring that it will be venerated as such by the whole church, close quote, Pope Francis, and that this solemn and infallible declaration is somehow open for debate, discussion, or dismissal by someone or anyone who recognizes that Francis is the Pope, this idea is completely laughable. The divine human institution that has existed in reality is the only one that must be recognized as the true Church of Christ. To belong our reverence, our obedience, our love, and our loyalty. There is only one church, and that's the church as she is in reality. The church may not be the way we think she should be, but it is the church. The popes may not be the way we think they ought to be either, but they are the popes. Don't jump off that mortal sin indirectly against the faith cliff. Let's close. Our Lady of Fatima said, many souls go to hell because they have no one to pray for them and make sacrifices for them. There are many pious people who are jumping off these cliffs, apparently, to their doom. We need to pray and sacrifice for them. And we got no place to be smug. After all, if we don't find ourselves running off one of these spiritual cliffs, it's not because we're so great. It's because of the unmerited mercies of God. If St. Paul could write to the Philippians and tell them to work out their salvation, with fear and trembling, and write of himself that he had to chastise his own body lest he find himself cast away. How much more could that be said of each one of us? We need to pray and sacrifice and stay close to Our Lady. Get closer to Our Lady. During the Passion of the Lord, who stayed faithful at the foot of the cross till the bitter end? It wasn't the Pope. Within a couple hours of being consecrated, he denied our Lord three times and ran away. That's the first pope. Wasn't the apostles either, except for one of them. Where were they? They booked out of there. They were gone. During the Passion, the ones who stayed faithful to the bitter end were the ones that stayed close to Our Lady through it all. And those were the only ones. As we enter ever deeper into the passion of the church, let's be very, very careful to stay close to Our Lady. Ask her to help us keep faithful, to preserve our union with the Pope, to keep us safely in the church. Live the message of Fatima 
Say your rosary. Wear your scapular. Practice the true devotion of St. Louis de Montfort, St. Maximilian Colby. Preserve your union with the Pope. Stay in the church. Stay close to Our Lady, and you won't jump off a cliff.